0: Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs.
1: Welcome to Occupy Health, this is Dr. Susan. We've talked with many naturopaths and functional medicine practitioners because we want to look under the hood. We want to know what's the cause of any ailments and we want to know what we can do about them. So where does disease come from? What causes it? Why do we have so many chronic diseases? What can we do about it? So to explore this today, we have Dr. Dixon-Tom. He is one of the co-founders and medical directors of the American Center of Biological Medicine. He has over 40 years of experience as a clinician and over 20 years as a medical professor. He lectures extensively throughout North America and has been teaching doctors, students, and the lay public on proven medical principles and business skills for over 35 years. He was the former dean of the naturopathic medicine at the National University of Naturopathic Medicine and a full-time professor. In 2009, he received the prestigious award from the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians for his commitment to VIS, or healing power. He is one of the co-authors of the new book, Bioregulatory Medicine, an Innovation Holistic Approach to self-healing. So, welcome to the show, Dr. Tom.
0: Thank you very much. I very much appreciate the invitation and uh, the opportunity to share some ideas.
1: Well, I hope that the uh, public can get lots of information so they can work on their own wellness. So, to get started, how did you get interested in bioregulatory medicine well, many, many
0: years ago, almost 50 years ago, in fact, uh, I, when I entered uh, medical school, which at that time was dental school because my first degree is as a dentist that I practiced for 16 years. And in the course of uh, that period of time, uh, I became exposed, you know, somewhat through personal, family, uh, some health challenges, uh, without really finding uh, any real solution to that. And, uh, you know, that was the era of Hal Huggins. That was the era that mercury toxicity was just sort of starting to become understood and known. And so I started to explore that whole idea of, you know, how do we minimize uh, exposure to toxicity especially as a dentist where we were putting amalgam fillings in people's teeth, knowing that mercury is one of the most toxic substances there is to the nervous system. So over the course of years, uh, you know, it became evident that this probably wasn't the best thing to be doing. Uh, You know, some of my patients uh, certainly did not do well, so I got on the, which was very new in those days, the bandwagon of uh, maybe putting amalgam fillings in people's teeth is not is not well indicated. We're talking back in the nineteen seventies, so it's a long time ago. Uh, anyway, that that sort of led to to the whole idea that uh, let's explore other ways, other cultures, uh, other what other you know people do in other countries. It's, it was about homeopathic medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, you know, Western medicine, naturopathic medicine. So it led me down this path of, of doing a lot of reading uh, back in the day of looking for you know why what is what's the common thread between whether you go to an Ayurvedic practitioner or or homeopathic practitioner or a naturopathic. Practitioner, and it became evident that it didn't, even though the words may not have been the same, uh, the the goal was the same, <clears throat> and that was how do we get the physiology of the body back into balance? And it was it was much less about uh, what is the patient's sign or symptom, what is the name of their disease, uh, and so you know the last. The 25 years I have anyway, that I shared with patients, I basically say, you know, your problem is not your diagnosis. Your problem is not headaches or PMS or toenail fungus or you know heart disease. That's a sign that you have a problem. And generally speaking, when a person has a diagnosis or a variety of different signs and symptoms, you know, through other types of evaluation beyond just standard blood tests or urinalysis or an X-ray or an MRI, it became evident that these these, uh, patients with these multiple, you know, different things, it was they had multiple organ systems out of balance because our body, our organ systems, are, are you know the most complicated computer ever built, and you know while computers are pretty fast and amazing, uh, we we'll never touch or we haven't yet been able to touch uh, you know what our what the human body is capable of. So it became evident that you know when I would treat people, and let's say I was treating them for headaches, uh, you know, and and, and they, they didn't they found that either Tylenol or Radville or if it was migraines, the latest migraine medication, you know, would maybe take the edge off, but it never really dealt with what the problem was. And so I started exploring, well, it can't be about me just giving an herb. You know, if I get butter burr, will that work any better? Or if I give magnesium, will that work any better? Maybe I should do an IV of magnesium. Or maybe I should have their neck adjusted type of thing. So it became evident that the... the The reason that the person came uh, was not really what the problem was, and so we needed to look at their blood sugar. We needed to look at their blood pressure. Uh, We needed to look at uh, the alignment of their spine. We needed to look at how they were sleeping. We needed to look at whether they were dehydrated or not. So the concept of bioregulatory medicine, therefore, is the exploration Beyond the name of a disease, beyond the sign and symptom, that truly looks for how do we allow the body to re-regulate itself. In other words, how do we get the body back into a place that we commonly call homeostasis or balance? And, you know, we think of the brain as, as the master, uh, you know, coordinator of all these types of things. And, you know, we have all these independent organs, uh, whether it's the cardiovascular organ or our digestive organs or our endocrine system or our lymphatic. And almost always in the exploration of, you know, whatever the challenge was that the individual was coming with, we found multiple systems that are out of balance. And I realized that if I was going to send the individual to a specialist, who would do their special test, they were, they were ignoring all the other systems. And while the patient may feel better, they never really got better. They never were able to be cured of whatever it is that they were, as long as they took their high blood pressure medicine or as long as they took a Tylenol if they had a headache uh, or, you know, whatever the situation was, uh, they, they managed. But, you know, that was, I call that the management of just, it's, it's, you know, it's the management of chronic disease. Uh, That doesn't lead anywhere other than as the patient gets older, they have more chronic diseases because more organ systems become involved and get out of balance. So it's that whole concept of looking at things. And, you know, I would say the success that I have with with patients, individual patients, that's why I say I don't treat any diseases. I'm a health practitioner, not a disease practitioner. Uh, and, and a lot of people say, yeah, well, we're trying to explore the cause. But, you know, many times I'll talk to a doctor. Maybe the person has, you know, symptoms of low thyroid, for example, which are typically, they, you know, they're gaining weight or they have trouble losing weight, they have dry skin. They, if it's a woman, she may have dysmenorrhea, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the doctor will do a blood test, and you know, he says, oh, well, your thyroid values look fine, so it's not that. You have to go to somebody else. Or alternatively, they say, oh, no, your, your TSH is, is elevated or your, your thyroid hormone is, is too low. So what we'll do is we'll give you some thyroid hormone the person comes back in a month or two and say, oh gee, I feel much better, but then a few months later they say, well, it's not working so well. Do I need more of the thyroid hormone? And so I said, well, so you've never really addressed the problem because the real problem is, why is your thyroid not functioning properly? Are you looking at all the other endocrine organs? Because no endocrine organ functions independent of the others. Is your lymphatic system adequate? Are you supporting your, your digestive system? What food are you eating? Are you getting enough sleep? And so on and on and on. And so in reality, we approach all patients, no matter what their presenting concern is, with that concept of, and I prefer to look at organ management, uh, multiple organ systems, uh, and it's rare in our practice that mostly deals with patients with chronic illness that we don't find a minimum of five different organ systems that are out of balance. You know, using, uh, once again, beyond just regular lab tests or a picture of those, which are only a moment in time we also know that, that uh, unfortunately, only 5% of all lab tests, because of the way that they're statistically done, uh, <clears throat> are outside normal values. So I don't look for normal values. I look for optimal values of uh, whatever uh, evaluation that we're doing, uh, plus the, you know, the different types of tests of looking at their state of hydration, uh, their in-body, their, their composition of body fat mass, uh, is there water inside their cell or is it outside the cell? We look at how their nervous system responds to stress on an ongoing basis, et cetera, et cetera. So that is really what is the crutch of bioregulatory medicine. And when you go to a practitioner who practices this way, and I have to say this is not uh, the same as functional medicine. Uh, I look at functional medicine as doing lots and lots and lots and lots of tests and then treating the tests. So. I'm not against tests. I think it's great. But instead of just, you know, so if you do an amino acid profile, let's say, and you find that uh, two of the amino acids are out of balance, and say, well, take these amino acids. But it still doesn't ask, but why are the amino acids out of balance? Like, why is it only those two? Is it simply because you're not taking them in, which isn't likely? Uh, it's multi- It's usually because there's some other and multiple other, in fact, other organ systems that are out of balance. And that really is, I would say, what separates function functional medicine, from bioregulatory medicine, is that we don't just look at a lab test and, you know, this is low or this is high. So, or you do a test and say, oh, this person has heavy metals. This person has mold sensitivity. And many patients do. I'm not saying that. So then we, then, you know, then you say, okay, so, right, we got to figure out some way for the body to be able to eliminate. This mercury, heavy metal, mold, or whatever. Uh, but it's not just about take product XYZ. It's like, but why can't the body eliminate it on its own? Why are the natural ways that the body normally eliminates, which is a term that we call among trees, uh, why are the among trees not being efficient? Why are they so inefficient? You know, The, the main among trees that we look at is how the body removes something from itself. Obviously, it's through our urine, uh, our kidneys and bladder, through our digestive system, through bowel movements. It's also through our lungs because we breathe things out. It's also through our skin <clears throat> and that basically things come out through the surface. And the last among three, which people don't tend to think you eliminate it. I call it the emotional among tree because it's, there's so much research now that shows the connection between the brain uh, and so many types of illnesses, especially how much the brain relates, uh, relates to, or the digestive system, excuse me, relates to anxiety, <coughs> uh, depression, insomnia, you know, and all those types of things. So we, the the expert and I, you know, what I always uh, say when I'm teaching doctors is say when you Think you have a solution to whatever the problem is? Say, but what else? Why do they have that? Why is that what you need to do for this person? And you just sort of keep exploring. It's like keep you keep uncovering things, <clears throat> and where the problem has come from, in my uh, opinion, uh, based on doing this for the last twenty-two years, is uh, and it's now becoming more and more recognized. Is unfortunately these problems we're now realizing started even before our conception. And using the concepts of Chinese medicine and looking at how our different organ systems mature at different stages of our development, so literally from a time of pre-conception until we have fully energetically matured all our systems, is well into our 20s. Women are somewhere around 22, 25, and men don't fully mature their nervous system until 25 to 28. So between conception, and 25, we have all these different uh, systems that are maturing at different rates. And depending what happened between that moment of conception until 25, pretty much is the determining component or a huge determining component as to why somebody uh, shows up at a doctor's office. And historically, uh, we well know that the uh, um, by far, the, the unless one's a a pediatrician, uh, the most common age that people go to see the doctor is women over 40 and men over 50. Statistically, probably looking at 75% of patient visits are in that age, and then uh, the, all the other ages make up the other 25% of patients. So you say, well, what what happened in those first 40 years, and how did they get here? Uh, like, what? why are these organ systems breaking down? And we can say, well, we have poor quality food, which, yeah. you know, is... You know, that's part of it. In fact, everything's a part of it, but, but as I've explored this whole idea of recreating what happened to people from literally conception up through those 25 to 28 years, and we're able to reprogram a person's reaction, I, Prefer to call those things learned uh, perceptions, and so you know how you respond when something happens to you is not happenstance. You respond in a specific way because of how well you chose your parents, uh, you know how your parents raised you, if you had siblings, uh, what happened in those formative years of the kidney, of the digestive system, of the respiratory system, for endocrine system, the cardiovascular, and our nervous system. So it is I mean, and all that is sort of gets rolled into this concept of bioregulatory medicine and, you know, in the book what we tried to evaluate was, you know, the, the, uncovering that idea and, of course, one of the chapters in the books talks about dentistry uh, and, and the role that teeth play and how the teeth are on meridians and channels and how an infection in the tooth could cause a, a problem in a distant organ, for example. You know, just as an example, our wisdom teeth, uh, you know, which typically come in at the end of our teen years, usually a, could be a little bit earlier in, in girls and boys and men. Uh, it's it's specifically related to our heart and so how many patients with uh, chronic heart disease uh, you know have something wrong with either an infected wisdom tooth, they had a wisdom tooth removed and now have a cavitation or something like that and the chronic irritation is not in their physical heart, it's actually in their mouth uh, related to the area where their wisdom tooth was maturing and developing. So we, we really look, it's as broad a brush as we can look, it's as broad Water brush as we can to try and create an understanding as to how did the person get here, whatever the reason is that they're coming in. Uh, <clears throat> so, I know that's a pretty long winded answer to you know, how did I get involved in this? And, and of course, this type of work is very satisfying. Uh, what many people are disappointed with, however, is it's not quick fix, there's no magic bullet. There's not like, oh, can't I take a, a pill or do a remedy or do something and suddenly all this will go away? Unfortunately, not because these problems have evolved literally over the patient's entire life. If they're 62 years old and, you know, suddenly are coming in because their, their doctor told them they have palpitations or AFib or, uh, you know, something wrong in their heart, suddenly they think, oh, that just happened. They said, well, no, actually it didn't just happen. And if you look at your college years, that's probably when something happened during that formative years, which is when the cardiovascular system matures uh, energetically. Uh, obviously, we have a heart, but uh, and, that, and that's also the uh, the years that you know the typical expression, oh, your first heartbreak, your first breakup with a girlfriend or a boyfriend uh, type thing is like, and that that I'll call it the grief or that emotional challenge literally weighs in your heart. It can also, and if you're having a a wisdom tooth that's starting to erupt at the same time, then the brain picks up the fact that the wisdom tooth is the problem. And then throughout, throughout our rest of our life, our heart can can literally be paying the price for something that happened to you 50 years previous, uh, and then they go to the cardiologist and they say, well, yes, this, you need to take this medication, but there's never a, but why did it start, like, why is it there? Well, what is the underlying true etiology of these types of problems? So it's a, that is a very broad brush that we follow, it's quite detailed, and it's it's not fast, and, you know, we, unfortunately, we live in a society where we sort of want instant gratification. Health, unfortunately, isn't, I always say to people, it's not a 12-week journey or a 12-step process. This is a lifelong journey, and once we embark on the journey, the idea is to incorporate uh, things that we can do for ourselves on an everyday basis while seeking professional help, uh, you know, in specific areas. So. That kind of is how I got involved in this whole bioregulatory medicine regime.
1: Ah, there's a lot of wisdom in there because a couple of points I would like to emphasize. For example, the laboratory test you refer to, it's based on 95% of the population, most of which are very sick. Look at the people around you. They're obese. They have so many chronic diseases. And this is on what we base normal on. So we certainly want optimal rather than normal. I want to be optimal. I don't want to be normal. And another thing is I just don't understand the allopathic approach if you just give a pill to mass the symptoms I mean these symptoms are expressing themselves because they're trying the body's trying to do something you get a mucus plug that's trying to get the bacteria out of your system but then the patient wants I want uh, an anti-mucus plug thing so I don't have plugs or if you get a little bit of a temperature even the temperature is supposed to be helping healing or I mean I just don't understand why suppressing symptoms I mean I should think encouraging the symptoms like a Do would help the body go toward, will help the body's healing mechanisms go in place. And I also like your analogy to. Uh, traditional Chinese medicine, because all these organs and systems are interconnected. And so it's not just one organ, it's just um, all interconnected. Another thing that I was impressed by is the role of the teeth uh, and and healing as each tooth is on a meridian. And Dr. Levy, whom I interviewed previously, goes into this in a lot more detail. But one of the things that I am totally mystified by is why does a dentist put these toxic substances such as fluoride and mercury in the mouth, where each of those is a biohazard and needs to be disposed of extremely carefully. I don't understand that. It's a very challenging political uh, question that, you
0: know, one of the unfortunate things is is that the American Dental Association has the patent, or has, I don't know if they still do, but they did in my day, had the patent on the amalgam. So every time a dentist bought an amalgam and put it in, the American Dental Association was getting, you know, a royalty on that type of thing. So I mean, you hate to say that that's the only reason, and you know, their their logic is. It's been around for 150 years. There's probably 150 million people in this country who have had, and may not have it anymore, but have had at some point in their in their life an amalgam filling, and they say, "Oh, well, it didn't cause any problems," and that's because the American Dental Association is not doing a holistic overview of the person's entire body. They're just looking at a tooth and saying, oh, the tooth looks fine, this is restored function, Uh, the person can chew on it, they're not having any pain and must be okay, but not realizing that that amalgam, which is basically leaking mercury on a constant basis, especially new amalgams, And they're basically then being deposited in some other organ, be it the brain or the breast or, you know, your, your liver or, you know, the digestive system. And and so it behooves us as biological and bioregulatory practitioners to help uh, to understand that. And, of course, uh, I'm sure Dr. Levy talked about, you know, you can't just go to a dentist and say, well, take these amalgams out because that's going to give you the greatest exposure possible uh, to a very toxic substance. It has to be done, you know, in a very careful uh, way. And you you look at the dentist, it looks like they're in a space suit because they're trying to protect themselves because they know when they remove this, this, mercury amalgam there's a lot of exposure that's being put into the air they don't want to breathe it in because they're doing it on an everyday basis and it is it is curious that um, you know Dennis. Um, Still, you know, there, and I don't know what the percent of dentists are who still use uh, mercury amalgam. I think one of the most unfortunate things about mercury amalgam is that in uh, low income or, or, you know, those types of, you know, the people who can, who can afford to go to a dentist. Uh, invariably, we'll say I don't want amalgams, but people like low-income people or you know migrants and those type of things who can't often go to low-cost clinics, and the only material that they offer there are mercury, and those are the, those are probably the people who are the most susceptible uh, to having those types of things put in their mouth, and it's it's an extremely unfortunate component, and you know then they wonder why is you know and it's and the, any type of exposure of heavy metals, uh, mercury or otherwise, you know, cadmium, arsenic, et cetera, isn't something that you know, unless you're a fireman and go into a burning building where these chemicals are being incinerated you know you're not going to get a, a massive exposure so even when uh, patients go to a, a toxicologist they'll just do a routine blood test without any type of a challenge and say you don't have mercury in your blood of course you don't have mercury in your blood the brain has enough knowledge to know if you're going to have this toxic substance you're not going to want it floating around so it, as quickly as possible it takes it out and it deposits it somewhere and says, I'll just stick it over here in this fat cell or the breast or wherever it puts it and then we don't think about it and and they say well we don't see anything like that no you're not going to see anything like that because the in the wisdom of the body's ability to heal itself as you just mentioned about fevers as you just mentioned about a mucus you know we you know we we get a cold we have a runny nose and the first thing we want to do is take mucinex or something to stop it which is the worst thing you can do because all you're doing is you're going against the very thing that the body needs, and in fact, the best antibiotic ever invented, and no, nothing which will touch it is called a fever. Uh, in fact, the the uh, you know the body has. In 99% of circumstances, uh, the body has the ability to literally shut off the temperature at about 105.5 because you know if it goes higher than that, you're literally going to fry your brain cells uh, per se. But, you know, people are worried when it gets to 99, it's like, 99, it's like, it's nothing. It's like, you know, trying to cook a a roast, but you only put the oven 100 degrees and you say, how come this roast is taking so long to cook? So I always encourage people to raise their temperature, not to lower their temperature. Yes, they'll be achy and sore, but heck, within 24 hours, you're, you're, the fever, which is the best antimicrobial there is, has literally incinerated whatever the microbe is. So, and, and you know, we always worry about children uh, who get a fever and said, "Oh, what if they have a you know a, a febrile seizure?" And there's good research from many years ago showing, and I always say, it's not a bad thing because, uh, children who've had febrile seizures, not epileptics, we're talking two different things, are generally have been shown over time to end up with a higher IQ because it's the way that you actually are stimulating those brain waves in a, in a young child. So fevers are, are not to be uh, taken lightly, mind you. So, you know, I always say put the, put the child in a bathtub. If it's a child or put yourself in a bathtub, do an Epsom salt bath, uh, for, for example. Do a tepid bath. It'll lower it for a few hours, but you're not going to eliminate it and then the body will, will allow itself to once again recreate the fever that will basically speed the healing. And yes, for twenty four or thirty six hours you said, Oh, I'm achy and sore. It's like really I don't want to really feel like that and we have and a the child's because oh we have to take our child to daycare or I have to go to work tomorrow or whatever it is. We have we have all kinds of reasons why, you know, we we don't allow that to happen in our society unfortunately. You know, I always say the best thing you can do is turn off your cell phone, turn off your Wi Fi, go to bed, sleep a lot. Drink, uh, you know, eat chicken soup, drink lots of water, get in the bathtub. It's the best way you're going to deal with uh, colds and flus. Now, there are other things, obviously, you need to be taken care I mean, I'm aware of, you know, there's some very, 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 very serious diseases, pneumonia, meningitis, glomerulonephritis, That, You know, no, that's probably not. You need professional help with those types of things. But for colds and flus where you have a 99 fever and you're just achy and sore, Heck, we have, I think, letting the body heal itself uh, is, the, is the best type of thing you could ever do for it. Uh, and, you know, your initial question, why do, why do dentists put these toxic substances in? Uh, hopefully, it's not because they think that those are the only answers. Uh, I, I would shudder to think in our day and age with the amount of scientific literature that, has, that has, um, is available, and Boyd Haley was a PhD, I think he's in Kentucky years ago, who has written, you know, spoke to Congress about the, the effects of mercury and, you know, never also is taken in, in, in conjunction with. They're only looking at one metal. What if you put mercury and arsenic together? I mean, it's a synergistic effect uh, that creates even a greater problem uh, for the individual. So. There's there's no logical reason why any dentist in this day and age should ever even have a mercury amalgam in their office because it exposes the staff his or her staff to the to mercury that's in the office. We don't you know mercury is the you know if it was interesting, <clears throat> is mercury is the only thing you can't or one of the things you can't transport across international borders. So you know how do we dispose of mercury? And how does a dentist dispose of mercury? Hopefully he has uh, traps that are basically not putting it back into the public water system. And, you know, they store it underwater. Uh, but yet, in your mouth, that's, that's supposedly the only place you can put it. You can't use it anywhere else. We can't use mercury thermometers anymore because of the toxicity. Its mercury is being removed from, you know, they were removed from uh, vaccines many years ago because of the the buildup of mercury toxicity. If a child was going to go through the entire uh, set of uh, immunizations and vaccinations, but what do they replace it with? They replace it with aluminum. So, you know, is yeah. that going to be any better? So it's like, wow, it's, we really need to be looking at these types of things to, to create this understanding, of you know, knowledge, education. And that's obviously what the, your show is about is how do we add more information to the people out there so they can talk to their dentist and say, what do you have, what do you have mercury in this office for? I, I never want that type of filling. So that's the best explanation I could give for that question.
1: Uh, I've also interviewed Dr. Kennedy who I believe in the past has made some films that as soon as when you brush your teeth you pick at them or the dentist cleans them uh, he's got pictures of the vapors of mercury just going right up to the brain uh, it doesn't sound good folks so even we have to gum will do that if you chew, gum. If, even yeah, if you chew gum.
0: gum same thing
1: yeah so anyway, I can see how your approach definitely differs from allopathic approach, the MD approach, because the MDs, it appears, you've got a symptom, let's suppress the symptoms, this will create more side effects and might get in the way of healing. But how does your <coughs> approach differ from naturopathy? And in your view, why and how do we get sick?
0: Uh the approach is definitely an extension. Uh, naturopathic medicine has you know been around I'll call it more the original medicine because you know the, the original naturopaths in the late 1800s basically were promoting I'll call it hygiene, natural hygiene you know food hygiene uh, cleansing hygiene, uh, natural clothes and all that kind of stuff so unfortunately what's happening in the naturopathic community, is in my biased opinion, is that they're they're tending to want to move towards more of the allopathic approach, uh, just for the acceptance of oh well if you know if you if you go to a, a doctor and they say well yeah we can do vaccines or we can do uh, flu shots or uh, you know we will be accepted uh, and maybe insurances would ultimately accept that type of thing and uh, that's not every naturopath obviously uh, but there is some belief that that is part of that. Uh, uh, the, the concepts, the philosophy of naturopathic medicine uh, is, is definitely, uh, you know, a step, uh, quite a big step beyond uh, conventional medicine because, you know, the, the goal is hopefully that, you know, if you have high blood pressure, your first uh, line of attack is not to give them lisinopril uh, as a high blood pressure medicine. But it's also, it shouldn't be, well, let's do cortegis. Or let's do convalaria, or let's do cactus as an herb uh, that basically will try and create the same type of an effect that the high blood pressure medicine is. And what I'm finding is, is that uh, the schools that you know, I taught in the schools for over twenty five years, and uh, you know only in the last couple of years, um, have I moved away from that, and now I'm doing sort of more mentoring, uh, I would say, than teaching in the schools. because the schools in all honesty, became a little frustrating uh, to to manage because they they were more interested in just giving an herb instead, but no, they talk about they talk about hygiene, they talk about diet properly, they talk about the importance of movement, uh, they talk about the the idea of sleep, which is the same thing that we talk about. But I, my sense with naturopathic medicine is they just don't go far enough. They, they don't look at the, uh, you know, a lot of research for a lot of different types of evaluation equipment comes out of either Russia or Germany or Korea, you know, other countries where I'll, I'll say energetic medicine uh, has been is much more accepted and is a part of the national healthcare care systems. And so you can go to a, a, a homeopath in London In England, you go in Germany, in Brussels, in London, France, etc. And you know, it's not just about giving a medical doctor isn't just about giving you a prescription. They'll say we can do homeopathic herbs. So you know, they've they've extended that. But the United States, unfortunately, still seems to be lagging around. And you know, whether that's a lobbying effort in Congress or or whether that's a uh, the power of the American Medical Association. You know, the goal for all of us, no matter what our degrees are, no matter how we practice, It should be simply what, you know, our patients, Uh, you know, the the whole idea of how do we help a person feel better, reach their optimal performance, uh, be able to do their best possible thing without saying, oh, that doesn't work or this doesn't work or we need a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover study to to show that it works. Uh, As we well know, um, a good, good number of medications that are being used presently have never had a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover study. In fact, you know, one of the most common ones is Prozac, uh, you know, was, was initially used and in, uh, as effective uh, for some people with depression. Uh, however, they have also found that for, uh, for premenstrual syndrome, it also was helpful. So now it becomes prescribed as much for PMS as it does for, but yet nobody's ever, I've never seen a study saying, oh, yeah, we should use Prozac to treat PMS. But there is no study there. And, you know, I have one famous study that was published um a few years ago in the British medical journal you know very well-known scientific journal who were questioning this whole idea of you know where do we step over the line to really say everything needs a double-blind placebo control crossover study and what they published was they were looking for volunteers to uh, go and to join their uh, parachute study because it had never been studied to what it actually did so they were willing to find people fly up in an airplane Plane, put a pack on their back. The person who puts the pack on doesn't know what's in there. The, the patient doesn't know what's in there. Uh, per se, and throw you at the airplane and let's see what happens. You know, it's like, okay, that's pretty seems pretty foolish. Well, of course it's foolish because common sense, will going to tell you, there's a little parachute in there. You're going to unfortunately be dead by the time you hit the ground. They said, so why do, why do we use parachutes? It's never had a, a, a you know placebo double-blind study. The Aspirin was used for 100, over 100 years before they even figured out what it was doing, uh, per se. So there's lots and lots of things like that, that common sense, uh, will, I think, stands the test of time. And unfortunately, one of the things, whether we call it alternative medicine, naturopathic medicine, homeopathic medicine, bioregulatory medicine, they say you don't have any scientific basis. But the scientific basis is 2,000 years of history. Uh, if we look at Chinese medicine and Chinese herbs, uh, one of the oldest medical systems there are uh, you know, in existence I said, I can assure you they didn't do double-blind placebo-controlled studies to prove whether or not the herbs that they were using, they are using doctor signatures, uh, the, they were using the wisdom, they were looking at what animals were doing when they injured themselves, what herbs did they eat, so it was a lot of observation. And so a lot of observation it certainly comes into play in you know, the, medicine, the alternative, or I'll call them alternative. Uh, types of medicine that are uh, typically being used, uh, in general. So, you know, from the aspect of that, uh, unfortunately, that's one of the reasons that the, uh, it seems anyway that the American Medical Association and uh, a lot of, uh, conventional medical doctors are saying, I have no scientific proof, yet we could probably read 50 magazines a month uh, that are published in nutritional studies, Uh, although historically, and I still believe it's true, uh, the, the amount of nutritional information that's taught in most medical schools is Pretty limited, uh, you know. So now we get a lot of information. So they rely on dieticians and nutritionists, which is great. Uh, but it's not the doctors who are basically able to say to the person, you know, that you know, is it is truly heart disease about cholesterol? And you know that if you're in the '60s, that was true. But we now know uh, that's not what the issue is. And just having your uh, LDL lower than 100 uh, doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have some type of cardiac problem, uh, per se. And even though that the, the use of statin medications, uh, which have been, uh, you know, very popular and help a lot of people, there's no doubt. However, they still don't ask, but... Why is your cholesterol high? And they say, well, you eat too many eggs, you eat too much red meat, knowing that only 20% of our total cholesterol has anything to do with our diet, but 80% of our cholesterol, in fact, is made by our own body, specifically the liver. So if you have a high cholesterol, we should be looking at what is the liver doing? Why is the liver needing to produce so much cholesterol? What is the stress that you're under? Because we know that stress will dramatically increase LDL, so-called bad cholesterol. So unless we manage the person's stress, you can take a statin medication, it will lower the LDL. Supposedly, it will lower your risk of having a cardiac event. However, your liver will still keep pumping it out until you learn to deal with the stress in some other way. And then when we look at their nervous system, we say... While you're in this sympathetic dominant state, you're always in flight or fright, you're just going to keep making more cholesterol, you're either going to need more medication or you're going to start suffering the, the uh, adverse effects that come with taking a medication, uh, you know, it's that type of thing. But there are people with risk factors, there are parents, maybe they've already had a, a, a heart event that, okay, that, until we can turn this stuff around, that will buy you some time Uh, and you'll either have to take it the rest of your life uh, in order to manage that, or we look at uh, the liver most specifically. And we also have to remember that, you know, cholesterol is the raw material from which we make virtually all our hormones. So he sees so many women uh, basically, you know, taking bioidentical hormones uh, after menopause, for example. Why? Because the ovaries are not making it. But they also look at their cholesterol and they be on a statin, and their cholesterol is maybe, you know, 120. And I said, how are you supposed to make any hormones if you don't have any raw material? It's like, well, I want you to build this house, but I'm not going to give you any lumber or any tiles for the roof, but I want you to build the house. So when you don't have the raw material, you can't make down, what's downstream. So whether you're making testosterone, cortisol, uh, estrogen, progesterone, et, et cetera, you need some raw material, which is at the top of the, of the chain, we'll say. And so, you know, very often when I see a person that their their cholesterol is less than about 160 or 170, I said, you're going to get unless you're a, a, truly a vegan, uh, which can have it, and then they often, not uncommonly, will have some hormone issue. And I said, until you get some more raw material, you're either going to have to take the hormone or figure out how we can raise your cholesterol uh, by making your liver produce more. So, it's not just about diet uh, for sure, yet that is commonly what is looked at. And, you know, the ads on TV say, oh, well, if, if your diet was not enough to lower your cholesterol, then you'll need your product X. I'm saying, no. Why is your liver making it? That's where we, we really need to be looking. Uh,
1: yeah, it, this um, is an issue pretty important to me because I just wrote a letter to the medical center I go to uh, complaining that well, they just when my cholesterol hit 209, which it was for 10 years, they wanted to give me a statin and I asked, don't aren't you concerned with the cause? I mean, I cited one thing that was off the charts lipoprotein A. What's that was the answer. But I think the real cause for me is a high level of Epstein-Barr virus. For example, Dr. Houston, when he talked about cardiovascular disease mentioned there are like 400 risk factors for cardiovascular disease and I think the same goes for any vascular disease or Alzheimer's and you just have to find out which one how they're contributing in what proportions it could be stress poor sleep I mean I mean I mean i got to look at the cause but just to pass out the pad and the statins they deplete coq10 they affect the myelin so you're going to get muscle aches coq10 you're going to affect the energy it's going to affect adiponectin so you're going to get on the road to diabetes i mean i mean why aren't they looking at the cause i mean Just pulling out the script pad, it doesn't make sense. Oh, in particular, if the statins cross the blood-brain barrier, what are they going to do to the cell walls of our neurons? I mean, you need the cholesterol for these cell walls. And if it's in the brain, what's it doing to our neurons? What kind of mess is it making? I mean, I don't get it. It's
0: very frustrating when you have that little bit of that more knowledge. And thankfully, the people who will be listening to this or listening to this will start hopefully to question and their doctor as to just oh do I just start taking this with no other investigation or what about the adverse effects that as you've just mentioned in either making more hormones or making a cell wall for all these cells and our cells are constantly turning over. Uh, you know, some, like in our digestive system, only are there three or four days and they turn over. Our eye turn the cells in our eye turn over even more quickly. The neurons are a little bit slower, but they're still turning over. Uh, but so you're absolutely correct. Uh, what are we really doing? And And unfortunately, younger and younger people are being put on these medications, and so... What's going to happen to them in 15 and 20 and 30 years from now? What's their health going to be like as a result of taking these medications long term and how is that affecting the repair? of their body because every time, you know, a neuron is injured or a cell is injured, it has to try and repair itself. Uh, but we are interfering with that repair process. So uh, that's why we have to, you know, step back, look at the big picture, see how everything, as you've just suggested, uh, work in, as a team uh, with everything else because that obviously is a much more important and a much more effective goal. And as <laughs> uh, optimal performance uh, to have numbers that look optimally uh, you know when they do a blood test and we're not worried about normal as you said who wants to be normal when 95 percent of the people they're testing it out are ill uh, and they're still considered normal so it's a a very well well spoken that point.
1: Well uh, we only have like 10 minutes left so what Points do you want to leave the listener with? What do you suggest they investigate? What test do you think they should ask for? And obviously, they should ask the doctor, why is this happening? But uh, what words of advice so that our listener can start their own path to wellness? What advice do you have?
0: Uh, so, obviously, my first suggestion is you know, on Amazon, you can buy the book, uh, and I think that would help people tremendously get sort of a, a two, And what it's trying to do, it's, the book is not written to create controversy. The book is written to hopefully open people's minds that there is another way of thinking about health. There's another way of approaching health. There's a lot of things that we can do for ourselves that don't require a professional. Uh, you know, the professional will be, will be your guide, but they can't go home with you and do the work itself. So it's, it's attempting to uh, raise the awareness, just like the show is today, uh, for people to start questioning their doctor more, uh, to start being more inquisitive as to, as to, you know, why do I have this, and don't be satisfied, well, we don't know. So it should say, well, maybe you don't know. So are you saying nobody knows the answers as to why that? Is So I think people need to be more uh, forthcoming with their practitioner uh, as to what it is that they're attempting to achieve with a doctor. Uh, Don't be as quick to just accept the prescription, uh, thinking that that's the solution to the problem. As you've said several times, uh, ask them why they think the cause is. Uh, and don't accept, well, uh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, well, then why don't you investigate that? Why don't you try and understand uh, where, where these problems came from Excuse <coughs> uh, and why they're there? So th- that's certainly one aspect. I also, um, you know, it's mentioned in the book, and it's something that uh, we can all do, uh, we can all start doing, and I, I call them uh, natural laws. Uh, you know, and if we had if we had this discussion, and you asked the question, why do we get sick? Uh, I and mean, I've in having done literally thousands of presentations, I've asked that question to many, many groups, and invariably people will always say stress, poor diet, not doing enough exercise. But the number one answer always comes back to uh, microbes. It's the bacteria, the virus, the mold, the fungus, the parasite, and I said. But they they don't I mean you're talking about the stuff from Louis Pasteur back in the eighteen hundreds i said if if you were to infect a hundred animals with the same bacteria, do you think they'd all get sick? And no, well then why is it the bacteria that makes you sick? It's it's your own internal immune system. It's your own internal imbalance of your organ systems. So yes, there are some microbes that are incredibly virulent, and a very small amount would make everybody in the world ill. But the ones we're talking about that we are all exposed to when we are in the airport, or you know go into you know in a restaurant, and there's there's hundreds of different people there. We're constantly being exposed to things. You mentioned uh, Fc. Bar. Uh, you know, we're, to me, we're sort of having a re epidemic of that kind of stuff uh, the last few years, and it seems more and more people are getting into this reactivation of something that they were exposed to, often in their teens that may have been mononucleosis or, you know, may not have manifested to that particular level. So, my belief is, is that a good half of all diseases, um, and so I think I call things like microbes stress. Uh, you know, mercury fillings, uh, not a poor diet, uh, not not sleeping enough, etc., as as the uh, triggers uh, for the problem, but not really what the problem is. Uh, so we we follow these natural laws, and I said, and I would say, what uh, does every seven billion, seven plus billion people on Earth have to do for themselves every single day in order to survive? So everybody. Uh, has to drink water. So okay, there's the first thing you can do and how much water do you need? I use a formula uh, barring some some uh, issues with whether it's kidney or cardiovascular in general saying about half your body weight in ounces and coffee doesn't count alcohol doesn't count juice doesn't count we're talking clean water uh, so if a person is 150 pounds uh, we're talking basically 75 ounces of water so we're talking nine glasses of water uh, you know throughout the day not all at once uh, per se so that's a, that's one of the things obviously we need to eat food uh, to basically pr- provide us with energy uh, we need to try and figure out what is the best food for people. Uh, If you want to know what the best diet is uh, and don't know where to start, I say uh, you call it the whole food diet or can you name the food diet? Meaning you look at the food and if you can't name what's in it, then you can't eat it. People say, well, that's easy. It's a piece of bread. I said, no, it's not a piece of bread. What food is that? Well, it's bread. I said, well, what's in it? Well, I don't know. I have to read the label. Well, then you can't eat it because it's not a whole food. So you look at a fruit, you look at a vegetable, You look at a fish, uh, you look at uh, a legume, you look at soybeans. Uh, So when you see the whole food and say, aha, I can name that food, okay, now you prepare it, now you can eat it because you're basically getting all the nutrition. So in other words, we're minimizing things coming out of boxes, we're minimizing things coming out of packages, and does it mean you can never have it? No, this is not a 100% rule that, you know, if you don't, if you eat something out of a box or a package, it's like everything is destroyed. Not at all. We mostly are looking at. The whole idea of uh, supporting nutrition, supporting our cells, uh, they need, uh, you know, they're constantly being exposed to oxidative damage, so we need a lot of different colors. The research coming out a couple of years ago uh, suggested that it used to be, you know, a three colors, five colors, the rainbow colors, but two years ago this, the research came out and showed that ten different colors of food a day, white is not a color, uh, basically significantly reduced uh, rates of heart disease disease, uh, cancer um, you know lung diseases etc etc simply by eating more colors of food so the more colors you eat the better it is. Uh, drink water equivalent to about half your body weight in ounces. We need to, there, there's lots and lots of research also on how much uh, sleep do we get. Seven and a half to eight and, eight to eight and a half hours is really, Is and why do we need that much? It's because how the body repairs itself, how our hormones have been regulated to be able to repair itself. As Growth hormone is highest during the night. People say, well, I get by on six hours. Well, you get by on six hours, but what you're doing is you're driving your nervous system, so you actually don't have real energy. You have a lot of false energy. We don't want to use our false energy. We want to use the energy where it's supposed to come from. So we're looking at what we drink. We're looking at what we eat. We look at that we're getting uh, sleep not only seven, seven seven and a half plus hours. But we're also sleeping in the dark. or We're using a, an eye mask. We're not putting our cell phones. We're not looking at laptops uh, as we're going to sleep. Our cell phone is... Outside the door, because these uh, these extra waves that we're being exposed to are having significant impact on people. Uh, a thing that people have a hard time doing is you ask them, "What do you do for fun?" A lot of people pause and look at you and said, "Hmm, what do you mean?" I said, "What do you do for fun?" that doesn't involve your job or, you know, something like that. And so it's not talking about, you know, drinking, you know, three beer or something. It's like, how do you relax? How do you get your body into a parasympathetic uh, rest and heal type state? So do something fun, play, play with your kids, take a walk, walk the dog, you know, that types of things. So we need to move. We're, 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 a creature of habit. still the best uh, activity my belief, uh, I believe is walking uh, and if uh, there's a there's a little YouTube uh, by Dr uh, Evans called 23 and a half hours I would highly encourage everybody to watch it it's about 8 minutes long and he goes he, he really lays out the story that uh, why simply walking don't go you don't go to the gym just walk uh, ideally uh, about 150 minutes a week so we're talking 20 25 minutes uh, you know a day five times a week type thing and we'll get close to that so it's that type of thing so we need to move we need to sleep we need to eat well food's that our body for we need to drink water
1: we have about one minute left is there any way that people can get a hold of you and once again i want to recommend his book bioregulatory medicine an innovative holistic approach to self-healing by dr dixon tom is there any way people can get a hold of you
0: that well, what they should do is they can send an email to Dr. Tom. It's T H O M at uh, the bio, B-I-O med m e d center c e n t r dot com. Dr. Tom at thebiomedcenter dot com.
1: Okay. Well, winding up now, I really find this interesting, and I encourage our listeners to do their own research, ask the questions. uh, If you you know, bring people with you to the doctor to make sure you can ask the questions, so you can help yourselves and you can help each other, and above all, be well.